We're gonna draw a little bit of everybody's blood. We're gonna find out who's the thing. Hello and welcome to A24 on the Rocks. I will be your host this evening, Cole William Whitlaw Gibson, on a very special spooky episode featuring a film that is very near and dear to my heart. Before we get into that, let's introduce our co-host. First, we have Eric. I'm Wolford Brimley. If you have type 2 diabetes like I have, then you drink White Claw Tropical Pomelo Smash. It only has one gram of total sugars. You said kidding, Tropical Pomelo well, Splash? I, I don't have diabetes, and That's I, I'm still name. drinking White Claw, though. Uh, good evening, world. My name is Kevin Kakon Konachek, and tonight I am drinking a Pucker Patch Slushy. That's right. It's a slushy ale, and it's got uh, a whole bunch of cherry, raspberry, pineapple, lemon, and lime. You may ask who makes this. Well, it's my current employer, Lion's Tail Brewing. That's right. Come to Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, and drink my beer. That's all I got. A24 Vibe Discussion. Uh, tonight we are reviewing uh, one of my favorite, if not my favorite movie of all time, The Thing, from John Carpenter, from 1982. Uh, this film is actually a remake, which most people do not know. It's actually a remake from a 1951 film, The Thing from Another World, which is also based off of a, a book from 1930 or something like that. Uh, and this film is about a group of Americans in Antarctica at a research facility when a alien basically infiltrates and causes pandemonium throughout the compound in a thrilling film about isolation and uh, not being able to trust anyone around you. So first question to both of you, what is your background with this film and or John Carpenter as a director? Let's start with you, Kevin. All right. So I knew nothing about this film until I started this podcast with you X amount of months ago, years ago, however the fuck long it's been. In one of our first episodes ever together, I think you referenced this movie as being like, your favorite right and it took all the way until about this summer when i was laying at home sick and i was just thinking about things that i wanted to do to pass the time and i thought well hell i have access to the thing let's watch it so that was the first time that i had watched the film and immediately fell in love with it i thought it was the absolute bee's knees and was just like oh i understand why cole loves this film and then i rewatched it again for this podcast and was equally reminded why it really is a classic and is something brilliant. Uh, as far as my exposure to Mr. Carpenter, nothing. Zilch. Nada. Knew his name. Knew he was a fixture in uh, cinema history uh, in horror genre history, but that's about it. What about yourself? I've watched uh, Halloween before, obviously, and I've uh, this is the second time I've watched The Thing. I, I know, like, John Carpenter as one of the great horror directors of all time. And I've looked over his, like, filmography. It's really this and Halloween. The thing in Halloween that are the big, like, names on it. I know Village of the Damned has some cult appeal. And then uh, Big Trouble in Little China, I know, was, like, a big film. But that's that's not exactly horror, right? No. No, it's not. Yeah. Like, I, I never saw that one. Um and but, I've never seen Halloween, yeah, so, like, there's a reason yeah, that I John, just don't know John Carpenter, because I just... John Carpenter's a big director because Halloween, like, uh, 
I, I think the theme of Halloween, and again, we were talking about this on the Black Coat's Daughter, um, the use of negative space in Halloween specifically like led way to a lot of horror films like using negative space in cinematography to make people anxious about, I don't know, somebody killing them at any moment. You know, like uh, you have the character's face in one third of the screen and then you have a lot of blank and negative space on the other two thirds of the screen. Sometimes you have Michael Myers, you know, looking out of the bushes and that scares people. But it's that anticipation of things happening uh, that make people really fucking anxious and scared during horror movies. Yeah, I uh, I will. I'm a big advocate of John Carpenter. I've seen a ton of his films, the good, the bad, uh, all in between. Uh, I just I love his style. The ugly. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, he had like mastered the art of uh, unsettling and thriller type films. Like you just mentioned, Halloween puts you in a constant state of anxiety, and then the thing you know plays on that to a point where you don't even know who to trust throughout this film. Going into it and going into, um, you know, we talk a lot in some of our films about the characters and the development of these characters. How did you guys feel about his unique style of almost no introduction where you're just plugged right into the movie? A problem starts immediately and you're introduced to a whole cast and crew. No backstories whatsoever. Eric, I'll hand it off to you. I enjoyed it. I feel like... uh that it put us all on a similar level with every single character. Like, McCready wasn't the exact protagonist right away. Uh, we were kind of just dropped into this world where a Norwegian was just hunting this wolf, and we or a husky, I guess, and we have no clue why, and then we get dropped into this camp in Antarctica of, like, American scientists, I guess, like, quote-unquote scientists that, you know, some of them are playing chess or, you know, pouring, like, booze on their fucking computer but either way um we we don't have a clear protagonist right away we are kind of like turned towards mccready but we don't really root for anybody until 20 to 30 minutes into the film and i think that's a cool way to do it like i i enjoy that we don't have a clear protagonist right away we are kind of all pitted against each other as if we would be if we were in a desolate place in Antarctica. Exactly. As if yeah. there was yeah. a monster who was trying to kill all of us and we didn't trust anyone. And I agree with Eric completely that the way that they introduced the characters and the way they made the backstories vague, but it didn't matter because it was their actions that was the most important part on the screen was brilliant. Uh, I thought that was a really well done job of of kind of slow playing the whole story while still developing it. Because, I mean, how many people were on that on that thing? Like 10, I feel like? We had 10 to, like, I mean, is that a little Yeah, about, about 10. But it's, it's between 8 and 10 characters that you kind of have to literally, they all have personalities. They all have things that are defining about mm-hmm. them. They all have characteristics. And you all get, like Cole said, you get dropped in on it immediately. And you kind of have to suss out for yourself or pick out how you're going to trust these characters throughout the whole thing. Like you're asking the question, who do I trust just as much as the characters are asking themselves, who do I trust? And I think that's brilliant. Yeah. And, and I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, I'm going to try and, you know, not, 
persuade you guys because you everyone knows how much I love this movie. But there's actually a cut of this film that was released in a special edition that includes a bunch of backstories for every single character. And John Carpenter came out and said that that is absolutely the worst cut of the film. He did not support it because, like you guys alluded to, the point of this film <laughs> Is, is to not know who to trust. And there's why would you give a bunch of characters backstory mm-hmm. to the to, to the audience when you could just put throw them into a mess and have them feel the same terror of unknowing as everyone else? And I thought he did it a phenomenal job. And then some guy thought he could do a better job cutting it and he released it and ah, you know, pissed pissed off the director. So glad you guys agree with me on that point. And that's fair. I never trust McCready throughout the whole thing. I really don't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the whole entire time you're just questioning everyone's intentions and what what you know, what are they going to do? And that's another thing that uh the it's not necessarily a remake, but it's kind of a prequel, the 2011 version of the thing. They give backstory to some of the main characters and I think that hindered it and why it was not as uh, impactful as this one. So moving into uh, another aspect of this film that I thought they did, uh, you know, I personally think they did a great job is the music, the choices of music and the and what the overall score was. Kevin, let's give it to you about. Let me, you t- talk to me about music, man. I'm a big dummy. I know nothing about music, but I liked the sounds. See, that is all you really need to say about a soundtrack, right? If you don't know anything about music, but you can appreciate the way that it's put together from a soundtrack aspect, they did a pretty good job. Any horror film is going to have these highs and these lows, or even a thriller of some sort where the soundtrack absolutely is necessary for you know the heightened awareness of the film but we but we get a lot of great tracks from our boombox in the kitchen right i think that the ambient noise in this film is is brilliant they do a great job of you know accentuating helicopter noises right gunshots like whatever it have the the noise of the monster itself that is such a highlight that you have to bring it into the conversation about soundtrack even though it, it probably isn't what you would regularly discuss uh, when discussing that so uh overall i mean it just lended to the suspense and the horror and the drama of the film and i really liked it all right so fun fact about the music uh the scene with the boombox where he's playing uh supernatural superstition, superstition. dang it okay so we're gonna yeah, superstition yeah. by stevie wonder uh, stevie wonder all right motown baby right. so steve that song actually was in the original theatric release, but Universal never got the rights to the song. And so when they released it to home on like VHS and stuff, they actually had to replace it with another song by like a completely different band <laughs> and everything like that. And then eventually they got the rights. So now it's back in the original film. But uh, that was like a, a, just a fun tidbit of Kind of how back in the 80s, they just didn't give a shit about copyright. They're like, eh, fucking put it in the movie. We might get the rights. If not, we'll swap it out later, but, it, you know, we'll try and make some money. So, But, Eric, tell me about your, your interpretation of the music. Neil Morricone, uh, he did a lot of really good film soundtracks. Uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, In the Line of Fire, Bugsy, Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, Mission to Mars, and The Untouchables by uh, Brian De Palma there. And he... Uh, He's a really fucking good uh, film composer. The fact he did this one, like, adds to 
the ilk of this film. I did not know any of that, and that's brilliant. I mean, that alone just sets this movie even higher above yeah. than it ever could have been, right? I mean, it's just just yeah. brilliant. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly has probably one of my so favorite iconic, film soundtracks right? of all time. Yeah. Very like, good. Yeah. Wow, 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 So good. So moving on to um, kind of the introduction. Let's let's talk about the introduction of the alien and its presence kind of being known. So I uh, have talked a lot about, um, I do enjoy CGI to a certain extent, but I feel like it's kind of taken away uh, some of the impact that film has with practical effects. So I, I kind of want to talk. Uh, let's let's go to Eric this time. What was your thoughts on the initial impact of the, you know, the alien and the creature? And uh, maybe just touch on some of the just general effects that were performed in this film. Well, if I believe uh, the practical effects, they like. The 80s was a big time for practical effects. People turning into monsters in this film was a big part of this film. It was campy. It was definitely campy. And I actually kind of love how campy it was. Nowadays, you don't really get that kind of campiness. We we have CGI nowadays, but we don't have as much uh, practical effects to show like how kind of cool certain like transformations can be from human to monster. The fact that this film kind of did the 80s thing of, like, like fully embracing the camp of it, it, it makes it a little bit more appealing and charming. What about your Kevin? Man, what to even say about the design and the creature effects in this film? Holy cow. Um, the practical effects and the use that they decided to go all in in the sense that they made this monster truly an adaptable being that would change the way it looked throughout the film was a big big plus to this film and huge props i suppose and respect because they could have easily said or john carpenter could have said this is my one monster right this is the the thing that we're going to repeat in x amount of scenes throughout the film but instead he came up with something that was much more expensive much more hard to manage, something that he had to have a team of 30-plus designers on to even work on, which was this idea of an amalgamation of a creature that changed throughout the film and showed so many different sides. And the fact that you were going to then turn that all into a practical model is is just mind-blowing. It's not something that I think you would see in a lot of modern film, and it's definitely something that sets this apart. The dog aspect of this film is certainly interesting too, right? Because the first time that we see the monster or the thing is in that kennel. And we kind of see that throughout the entirety of the film as even towards the end of it where you get dog aspects of the beast as it's you know, dying or changing and all of that. Um, and that's really important too. And I think that the detail that they had to put in with using of animals and kind of how you have to get past the idea of this as being too gross right? Because they really had to be like, well, this is a film for certain people and we're just going to go all fucking in. We're doing all the blood, all the gore, all the crazy, all the everything, and we're just going for it. And on the other side, then you could have, you wouldn't have done any of the effects. So I think they realized that once they were at a certain point, it was just time to go all in. And uh, I think they did a great job. I mean, there's so many iconic scenes from the, you know, the the arms getting eaten alive by the corpse, uh, you know, 
between that and just like all of the gigantic looking things just throughout the whole movie just brilliant well done now cole uh did hbo like completely re-edit a lot of the uh like practical effects in 2011 it kind of seems like uh they might have done that universal studios ordered the film to be re-edited and released with cgi effects but like i don't know if hbo max took back the original version yeah, so they're talking about the, the 2011 version was shot with all practical effects, and then they went back and they overlaid CGI over the whole entire thing, which is part of the reason why I kind of hate that film, because I love the Thing universe, and I was super pumped for this new film. And when the Thing came out in 1982, you know, a lot of people, it, it did not do very well and a lot of people thought it was like too gory it was campy you know uh it was labeled as like a b-rated horror film and all this stuff made by universal fucking ronald reagan yeah man. and fucking uh ronald reagan <laughs> and the lead guy for all the practical effects was rob uh Botten, Botten, uh, and he was 22 years old, and he worked his ass off for this film to the point where he actually had to take time away from it and was, like, on medical leave due to exhaustion because he's put so much of, like, blood, sweat, and oh, tear and into this double thing. double pneumonia and bleeding ulcers, you know. Yeah, no and, and then they go and they make a, a spiritual successor, and they're like, you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to do practical effects. Actually, we're going to do practical effects, but we're going to paint over it with a bunch of bullshit. And it just, it, it, I don't know, it left a bad taste in my mouth. And like the film, the 2011 version is not bad, but it just, it doesn't hold up and it doesn't do, you know, what it's the, the series justice, so to speak. So, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I like how, Eric, you brought up the uh, kind of the campiness and stuff. And I, I sort of touched on it. This, uh, film when they were trying to staff it for actors so this was john carpenter's technical technically his first big movie it was like with a studio universal he had never done any films for any large studios before and this was going to be his first big you know so break so to speak and they had a very hard time getting actors for this film and especially a big name actor because no one everyone labeled this as a b-rated campy kind of horror film that they didn't want to be attached to um, originally there was supposed to be um harrison ford was the originally written for and i think there was about 10 other people that all turned it down until they came to kurt russell um, so my question to you kevin is do you feel like this is a b-rated film and do you think that uh kurt russell was the right man for the job all right look I'm biased. I really am biased for a couple different reasons. You're my friend. I love that this movie means a lot to you, and I really enjoy watching it. And I don't like horror films, so I don't care about A versus B or what even an A-rated horror film might be. I feel like this falls in line with all of the great horror films of the 70s and 80s. It stands up not just from a you know special effects aspect from from an from a story aspect from from everything else uh, i think kurt russell does such a brilliant job of being the most important thing that he has to be in this film which is a drunken hero he doesn't really have to be a leader he doesn't really have to be you know anybody who comes up with a great idea he just has to come up with some sort of personality and that's drinking and pouring his scotch out on a chess machine 
um, and just wanting to sleep in his shack, but having to save the world. I thought he was brilliant. I don't know if Harrison Ford would have done half as good of a job. Maybe he would, maybe he's not. But for me, it was really the right choice. Kurt Russell is the man, and uh, I really enjoyed that film because of his performance. Same question to you, Eric. I'm going to disagree. I, I think that this film could have been better without what? Kurt Russell. I, I think that, what? yeah, no, I, I think That's that, uh, it, so there's a lot of campiness to this film, and Kurt Russell definitely plays along with that, but I think that this film could have had more depth of character without Kurt Russell, and I actually think Keith David outacted him at every part of the film. Keith David was a fucking great he actor, and there are better, Wilford Brimley, really good, like, I, I think Ugh. he was actually a better actor in this film than also Kurt, uh, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, like, okay, if you look at the 80s, he was, like, the right man for the time, right? But when you watch this back 30 years later, I I just feel like See, he's... Keith David was perfect to be 40 years later, his 40 opposite years later. at the end there, yeah. right? Like, that was the right choice. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but, like, I, I just feel like Kurt, Kurt Russell did not put down the good depth of character that could have made this film a timeless, like, classic. And instead, I'm looking at this as, like, this is an 80s film that has camp to it, uh, has horror from the 80s, and has Kurt Russell, uh, who so, finds so this piece of the it. Kurt Russell is, yeah. like, the meme? Like, do you feel like his his the way you perceive him now is different? Like, the way it, yeah. it influences the way you perceive his character in this film? Yeah, and I this goes into my more general critique of the film. Like, I, I did enjoy this film, and I do enjoy this film, but... I feel like this film is a bit stuck in the 80s where it's like one action sequence after another and it doesn't really like give me a full So like, here's where I'll agree with you. It feels and, like the yeah. same character from yeah. like Escape from New York or like, you know, those quintessential yeah. 80s Kurt Russell movies. So you're right. In that sense, like yeah. it's it's a almost a cartoonish version of... of Cole's not enjoying this, but it's okay. No, I don't know. I, I loved it still, Cole. Don't get me yeah. wrong by so, any stretch of the imagination, bud. I like this film. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, I think it's a bit stuck in the 80s hey. is all. And I, I don't think Kurt Russell, uh, if we wanted to make this like a timeless Can you agree he's better than Harrison classic. Ford for a choice? Uh, not better like I, comparison, I like, like not Ford, strip, but like straight up. Harrison Ford does just play Harrison Ford mm-hmm. most of the time. Oh, so. I don't know. Indiana Jones I, I don't and, think it and Han Solo much... were different. Really? I don't know. Yeah. They, they seem, they seem <laughs> right. kind of similar. Right. Yeah. Oh, let's have that for a different so time. What, let's what save I'm that argument is for Eric a different episode. With the um, capitalist corporate stooges of Universal who said that Kurt Russell, oh, who okay. said who said that Kurt Russell wasn't oh. the right man for the job because he was a oh. pretty boy and wouldn't fit into the narrative of this film. Not a pretty boy. I, never I know. Said that's, that. that's, that's but, what Universal right. said. That's what Universal said, and uh, Kevin and I <laughs> agree with John mouth. Carpenter, who believed that he could do the role. And uh, you know, for everyone out there who struggles with growing facial hair, I just want you to know Kurt Russell's beard took him well over a year to grow it for this film, so he was committed. And I just I want to reach out to all of my uh, fellow brothers trying to grow a full beard like him. It takes time, and sometimes that's okay if you can't. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, oh it, it also, you know uh, I, like, I love that both that of you guys have touched on him pouring scotch into that computer. Um, uh, a little like personal, almost uh, foreshadowing in his life uh, when he dumps it in and calls the computer a bitch. Turns out the computer is voiced by his current wife, but then later ex-wife. So, uh, you know, maybe there was some tension and that's why we really got the feeling that he did not like that computer. So. Oh, <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, wow. I love this movie so You're bringing much. bringing all sorts of fun factoids right in this yeah. episode. Speaking of misogyny, let's talk about how this film is a completely ah. all-male cast. Kind of odd and interesting. There's absolutely no women throughout this whole entire film. There's no mention of women. The closest you get is to Kurt Russell's ex-wife talking through a computer that he calls a bitch and kills. So, my question to you guys is, do you think that the all-male kind of cast enhanced some of the like the isolationist and some of the tension between them or do you think that maybe you know the inclusion of female could have added or subtracted and i understand that this film was made in the 80s so there could be some things but i'm gonna go first uh, on this one kevin i'll give it to you um i you know i didn't even think about it it's odd odd that you you know, ask it, and then you're like, wait, you're right, there isn't. So I guess that means to me that it lended to the story um, of of the camaraderie, right, of the the brotherhood, or or the the idea that everyone is equal in their own brains, right? So if in, if you introduce a female, regardless of the way. Uh, the truth of, of equality and all of that jazz, the, the film industry has a way of portraying men and women and, and the battle of the sexes. Um, so the moment you introduce a female character, I feel like that element of distrust is changed a little bit. There's not the equal playing field where you have 10 men across the whole board where everyone could you know, be each other and who trusts who and all of that jazz. So there isn't any other element to that other than just that. Uh, outside of that, it probably could have uh, added some depth of character. Honestly, it, it probably could have added a different vein to it. So I won't say that it was the right choice. Um, I think that they probably could have had even more of an interesting take on everything if you would have added a female character. But I can see why John Carpenter decided to go with what he did. So I, I kind of look at this in the same way that uh, I look at Oppenheimer in a way. At that time, like, I don't know if there were that many, like, women in Antarctica or Oppenheimer's case. I don't know how many women were actually, like, at Los Alamos at that time. They were there, but, like, uh, not a main part of the story, which is a sad part of our society, but, like, a true fact. I I think that it it was true to the time period it was in. And so I I think that's fair for the time period it was in, really, the 80s. I don't have any gripe with okay. it. Yeah, I uh, had a similar kind of take when I first read that it was an all-male cast. I was like, I did not realize it, but I guess you're right. In you know, given the time and the place, I think it, it lends itself to that. And I think Kevin also made a good point of, you know, everyone's on the same playing field. Not to say that men and women aren't the same, but when given the horror context, especially in the 80s of... You know, women portrayed in horror films are typically not portrayed the same as men. So, you you know, there's a different kind of underlying connotation. Not to say that's right. It's just how it was back then. Another, let's go into another kind of uh, interesting subject that this film uh, kind of ties into. 
So in the 80s, when this film was was made and then later released, it was actually at the height or close to the height of kind of the AIDS scare where everyone was, you know, terrified. And uh, the writers actually took some of that and applied it to this film with the whole blood scene where you don't know who has it. You don't know what's happening. You don't know who is the quote unquote, the thing. And the only way to find out, you can't tell, you know, by looking at them, the only way to find out is through a blood test. So um, I was kind of thought that was a, a really interesting and kind of a cool nod into it. Um, Eric, did you kind of pick up on that or, or did you, you know, know about that prior to this film? I did not know about that. And, um, I should have done a little more research into it. Now that you mention it, it makes a lot of sense. It came out, what, 1982? Like, uh, so it was very early in the AIDS scare, and we all know that Ronald Reagan didn't even pay attention to it uh, at all through his whole presidency, and George H.W. Bush actually finally uh, acknowledged it. Kind of like thinking about how... To, to think about like how you could just touch a part of somebody's blood and figure out like, uh, oh, they have AIDS, you know, like, or I don't know, it, like the scare of like how, if you're around them, um, you might, you might get it. The paranoia of it. If John Carpenter was trying to make that large metaphor, uh, then I'd give this film more, way more props. You know, like, uh, if John Carpenter was trying to make this large metaphor about how people at that time, we're disregarding science and just kind of thinking about like, oh, if I'm near somebody, then uh, then I'll get it too. That I would give this film a lot of props. I don't think that John Carpenter was trying to do that, though. Correct me if I'm wrong. There but, is yeah. uh, so the writers have said that they took some inspiration from that, and then in that scene in the background, there's several posters from World War II talking about um, kind of like sexually transmitted diseases and stuff like that in the background of that scene that some interpretation okay. I think was taken in terms of connecting those dots because he, he's never come out and specifically said it that I'm aware of but I do I'd like to think that maybe he um, was trying to you know maybe bring kind of push that uh, paranoia into the film and, and, and whatnot so just my thoughts. Do you think that the uh, paranoia was effective in um, getting people to think otherwise, though? Uh, I, I don't think that it, it I don't think it probably was, because to be honest, I didn't yeah. even think about it until I read about it. And I looked back and I rewatched it and I yeah. saw all those undertones. So I think it was uh, a very subtle way to include it. But it wasn't one that if you went to the theater at the time, you would have come out thinking you know, kind of changing your mind about the whole situation involving the AIDS epidemic. So, so yeah, I, I give well, you that. Which, I mean, you're in the 80s and yeah, <laughs> like, I, I, I mean, if he was trying to make that grand metaphor, I give him props to it. But like, uh, I didn't see yeah. it. So, yeah. Speaking of the 80s, this film came out two weeks after E.T. and also the same weekend as Blade Runner, um, which... Kind of led to this movie being a failure in terms of the box office gross and stuff. Um, Kevin, my question to you is, one, if you were a kid or maybe the same age as you are now in the 80s and you're given the choice of E.T., The Thing, or Blade Runner, one, that's an awesome weekend to just binge a bunch of really great movies, but which one would you watch first? And do you think that 
E.T. coming out two weeks earlier and having a similar alien vibe, but a much different spin in terms of like the gore and the horror and stuff like that. Do you think that affected it? Holy <laughs> Batman. Look, if we're putting E.T. in the thing, even in a remote close to conversation, the fuck no. Look, Steven Spielberg and E.T. is a family friendly, like go out to the film Love life and feel good. The Thing is a movie that'll scar you for fucking life if you watch it correctly because it's, like, graphic as shit and just gory as hell. Like, there is shouldn't be any fucking comparison. <laughs> Look, Eric, you're an E.T. stan. You don't get to, stuff to comment on this whole thing okay. because you love it. <laughs> All right, no. I, I, I only I mean there was a previous episode where you really liked E.T. <laughs> I don't mean that to be in a derogatory stance. Anyway, uh... No, there there shouldn't be any comparison between this movie and that at all in any way whatsoever. I know the compare like the two week did it hurt it probably, right? Oh, there's an alien movie out there. Yeah, I don't want to see one alien movie versus the other <laughs> alien movie. But hey, Eric, God damn, they ain't even. There close. was definitely a commercial failure uh, involved with the thing, and and guess Blade well, Runner. Like, okay, I guess. E.T. Yeah, obviously did much better than all of them because on surface it had a must much rosier picture than both the these other films like blade runner very bleak and dark uh the thing i so this is going to go into my general critique of the film i i feel like it, it is like one action sequence a, after another and it almost is similar to die hard in that way where there's just like one action sequence <laughs> after another and that's like the film you know like yeah, I, I, I don't think there's that much deeper like uh, to read into it. Maybe Cole will uh, give me a different answer later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Cole, tell Are us. Are you telling me this is also a Christmas movie? Yes! Yes! Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I it's think in, so. It's in wintertime, but, like, uh, but either way, like, um, yes. I, yeah, I, if you were out at that time, it, like, or, I mean, like, you were, like, going to the uh, theater at that time, Obviously, you'd see E.T. You wouldn't see these other two films, like, if you only wanted to see one film. But if you wanted to see multiple films, yeah, sure. I'd see, like, E.T. And then I'd see... I'd probably see Blade Runner after the thing, if I was really ranking films here. Um, sorry, Cole, but, like, I, I do think E.T. and Blade Runner are a little bit better. But, yeah. Ah, I know. I, I knew what I was going to expect out of you. I was interested to hear more of what Kevin had. <laughs> but no, okay. I think uh, I think it's I think it's quite interesting that E.T. and this movie came out so close together. Um, and then if you look at the reviews uh, from film critics at the time, all of them just bashed the thing so hard for being too gory, too violent, too over the top. This isn't what like film is supposed to be about. And I think E.T. is the reason why he got so much hate because two weeks earlier, everyone was singing E.T.'s praises. You know, the thing comes out. And uh, another question I had leading into this is uh, a lot of people, a lot of film critics talked about how this is just an alien knockoff because Alien came out in 79 so you're talking three years earlier and they're just talking about how this is just a shittier version of alien where it's just over the top gore and 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 kind of bullshit i mean i disagree with that because um, yeah. i think alien infected one person and then got mm -hmm. out into the world 
the thing was trying to imitate people, like act like they're actually 100%. real people, and uh, like trick them into thinking that they're real people, and then kill them. And I, I, I do think it's different than Alien. Um, I, I think Alien might have set the path for these kind of films. Like, I, I do think sci-fi and horror, like Alien, pr- probably set the path for that. But I don't think the thing was a knockoff of that, though. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I had my, my, I think my top 70 movie was Alien and my top 80s movies was The Thing. And my number two for the 80s was Alien. So obviously I am the core demographic that absolutely love these, these films. But when I heard, when I saw that this was just a knockoff of Alien, uh, I kind I almost got offended for John Carpenter because I was like, this is so different. And John Carpenter, there's an interview that I watched with him where he even talked about how he wanted to make a sci-fi alien movie where it wasn't just a monster that you could tell was a costume that a man was walking in, right? And he even specifically called out Alien, which I think is a little bit of a bold take because the design for Alien, the the Alien in Alien is phenomenal by H.G. Geiger. But uh, I did like I did like his take about how he didn't want to make a monster movie where it was just a monster in a in a costume or that a person point, in a costume, right? He doesn't make an ending of a monster movie that's like a monster movie, which is also why. Exactly. And I know we'll talk about the ending here in a point, but I think like when you talk about reception, when you talk about the the critics and the people, when you have an ambiguous ending like we have, where you're forced to make a decision on your own about who is the thing or whatever that may end up being, the audiences don't like that. They want you to spoon feed it is to it you. Is it ambiguous though? Like, I think I, it is. I feel like they, I think they, they defeated the alien and they froze in the cold. I I think that's what happened. You know, I disagree. Like, yeah, no but they, they got but it. I think the they alien. Got Remember, remember, the alien wanted to be frozen. So once he realized he was caught, he was trying to sabotage the point where he was going to get frozen and then could be found again to start okay. over. He knew he wasn't so going to survive end, either so, way. Yeah, exactly. So and then, else and then you don't know the same yeah. way that he did this term. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So you don't know if the you know the two final characters. And I don't think John Carpenter wanted to answer that question. I think he liked audiences asking him. He, what was the answer? But audiences yeah. didn't like exactly, that. and you, yeah, he he did he did it ambiguous on purpose, and Universal was very adamant against it, and they did like a whole film screening, and uh, a bunch of people said that they wish they knew what the ending was, and for a long time, John Carpenter felt like that he was dead in the water in terms of this film because Universal was pushing him so hard to make a definitive ending where the monster was killed or the monster wasn't like they, they want, but he, you know, stood fast. And I think he did the right decision of making it ambiguous in terms of, do you know if one of them is an alien or not? You know, you know, they're both going to die, but is one of them going to be the alien and be found later when a rescue mission comes and takes the bodies home? Well, little little do they know, like global warming is going to kill us all. all, So you know, (laughs) oh yeah, I mean we're 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 all yeah, like they're going to be on a planet that's just completely (laughs) fucked anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, (laughs) yeah, so uh, I, I guess is there anything that you guys like liked or didn't like? Is there any like key scenes that you really thought were impactful or key scenes that took you out of it? I know I'm a big advocate of having rants about 
you know, things that take me out of movies. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to do your own. Uh, I really loved, I already touched on this, but the wide variety of the practical effects, like having so many different models for this monster was just brilliant to me. Mm -hmm. Just in every different context from it taking over the dogs to being on the, you know, autopsy table to the different phases to the giant, huge monster at the end. Like, all of it was unique. And I just think they did a really good job of making the thing really, truly a thing. And uh, I think this movie lasts in the annals of time because of that. So I just wanted to retouch on that. And I agree that uh, it it lasts in the annals of of time because Kurt Russell like is right there, and uh, you have Kurt Russell, you have Neo Morricone, you have like this campiness to the film, the practical effects. You rewatch it, and you like kind of remember what it must have been like uh, in the eighties and the sci fi uh, aspect of the eighties. I, I think it's a good film because of that. Do I think it's a great film? is the question that I will answer in my review. <laughs> hey, there we hey. go. Yeah. All right. I, li- I like I like the uh, segue to our uh, conclusion of this uh, one-off that I am uh, so happy that Eric Eric provided me the opportunity to, uh, you know, interview you guys and kind of have a conversation about one of my favorite, if not the favorite film of all time. Oh, fuck! My base was flooding! My base was flooding! Fuck! 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 Hey there, sorry, my basement flooded, so we're having some technical difficulties, and uh, we'll be right back. If you have type 2 diabetes like I have, you're confronted with choices. You can choose to feel sorry for yourself. I hope you don't. I hope you choose to get involved with a good doctor. Find out some things about diabetes in your own body and environment. You learn to check your own blood sugar and check it often. Not along with a simple diet and exercise program can help keep your diabetes under control. If you're on Medicare, call Liberty Medical. We'll help you keep your diabetes under control. First, we'll give you a free meter. No one is more serious than Liberty about helping you keep your diabetes under control. That's why we're a proud sponsor of the American Diabetes Association and their mission to prevent and cure diabetes. I have so many fun facts that I just like, I feel like I need just a solid like 10 minutes of me running through about how amazing this film is. You probably should just... You should just do them all. This film only, they, they filmed this for only three months. Like this whole thing took, like they did it all in three months, which is just mind blowing right. from the, like the practical effects standpoint, which oh, is yeah. why that guy basically killed himself. Especially for the budget. Yeah. $15 million. And then also the, you know, everyone was making their, uh, their breath look like visible because they, they, 
they cooled the whole set down to about 40 degrees so it wasn't freezing while they were doing it but they were making people's uh breath visible by basically having them smoke <laughs> prior to the scene and exhaling which is just like such an amazing 80s thing to do right. like, we're not gonna just make like, it yeah, so cold where your breath is actually coming cigs, out boys yeah. you gotta you gotta smoke yeah. cigarettes right before filming yeah that's fucked <laughs> And, like, one thing I didn't even realize was this was John Carpenter's first, like, big, like, feature presentation with, you know, Universal or any of those other big, Which you know, movie industries back makes then. makes sense why he was so, like, paranoid, I guess, about its, like, release and everything else and, like, the way people perceived it and, the, yeah. like, all of those things. From a, like, a, maybe, like, a cinema viewer, what a great time to go to the movies to see, like, yeah. E.T., Blade Runner, and the thing. Right? But what a terrible time to release your movie two weeks after E.T. and the same day as Blade Runner. Like, you are in such, like, <laughs> oh, what a hard... Spoiled. Yeah. God. So good. I will say, if you want to watch the 2011 version of the thing, it's set... The whole premise is, is, is the Norwegians, right? So it's set with all of the people from the Norwegians leading up to this film. And it's about how they discover the alien and their interaction and all that stuff. But it does... Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of things that they do that I think was because they didn't have a strong enough director to say no to Universal. And they like just jammed all the CGI and bullshit and and like backstories and they like overemphasize things and just, uh, I don't know, kind of disappointing to me. That but explosion it, at the I, end I, I is will say, quite still, ridiculous if you think about what Kurt Russell yeah. threw at that monster. Yeah, also Kurt Russell didn't realize the explosion was going to be as big as it was, and he almost got, uh, like, third-degree burns or something. There was, like, a he almost got, like, severely injured because he didn't uh, react or, like, jump far enough, and his reaction After to the says, explosion is actually, like, a, a real one. Him. Yeah. Fuck you, too. Yeah. So. <laughs> all right, all right, let's go. Uh, leading into our final ratings of our non-A24, uh, but... One of my favorite films of all time. Uh, I'm going to go first because everyone knows probably what I'm going to give it. But this film is near and dear to my heart. I absolutely love it. Uh, I'm a big James. Uh, or uh, God, I just forgot his name. I've drank too much whiskey. What is happening? John Carpenter. John Carpenter. Good God, I'm a terrible person. I love John We're Carpenter. I've seen podcast. so. I, Come on. Drink. I know. I've seen. I've seen like. All of his films, I absolutely love them. Uh, there's actually a trilogy. He calls it. He he calls it his. Uh, I can't remember what it is, but he he basically calls it his horror trilogy. Where it's this movie. Um, he made a movie called uh, I think Into the Mouth. It's kind of like a Cthulhu esque like horror novel movie. That's kind of weird. And then like, there's a vampire movie that he made that in the 90s that's escaping my my uh, brain as well, but. Uh, he made a bunch of those trilogies and a bunch of other really great movies. Absolutely love the guy. Uh, but this is still my favorite film. Um, just the overall atmosphere, isolation, all of the characters. I love the fact that you just get thrown right into the mix. You have no idea what's happening. Similar to the, you know, how those characters probably feel in, in the story, right? Like they don't know what the fuck's going on and neither do you. And that's why this film just emphasizes and excels at it and then you add the the amazing practical effects and overall just like craziness and like kevin alluded to most horror movies or most uh, creature features that i love 
it's just one it's just one creature right it's one version that they make and they use it throughout the film this one you have no idea what's coming next corner it you know it's a dog it's a person you don't know what person it's going to be you don't know who's going to open the door and stick his hand and melt it into your face and absorb you you don't know if you're gonna a guy's gonna go into cardiac arrest and you're gonna try and hit him with some some paddles to save his life and then the his fucking chest open up and turns into a giant mouth and cuts your arms off i mean this <laughs> you, you you don't know what's gonna happen and i love it so much if i could give it uh, like an a plus plus 24 i would this movie gets extra credit it's over the top it's better than a four point this person's my valedictorian i absolutely love this movie um I think I'm going to put Eric next, so that way we can sandwich the good with the bad. <laughs> so I'm not too down on this film. Like, I, <laughs> I I agree. Like, I love the campiness and the practical effects of this film. I, I generally, like, as a film reviewer, enjoy practical effects way more than CGI. So I, I definitely give it prop, props for that. My big thing is that, like, John Carpenter, he's a good director, but, like, I, I saw such better directing like during halloween like where he used like just anxiousness uh with his camera to build a larger picture of a film and kurt russell not my favorite actor like i i like him he's a good guy like you know like uh he's a good guy for your action films and this is what this kind of felt me what to me like it felt like a action film like where you had one death after another, one action part after another, and there was no building of character. Does that, like, lean into the film, like, being kind of a, a film where it drops you into a set, like, a, a time and place where you should have no, like, emotional attachment to anybody, and everybody should just be, like, questionable as in terms of, like, turning into the alien. Um, and that, that kind of, like, turns me back to my kind of big critique of film is like if you don't make me feel like any certain way about somebody then i'm not gonna feel extra special about a film i think i'm gonna give this film a b plus 24 like i i see where it is in the history of film the practical effects uh john carpenter his directing kurt russell being kurt russell i see it i i, I think it's a good film to go back and rewatch when you're you know, like watching films at Halloween, but I, I don't think that it's one of these like quintessential classics that everybody needs to watch. So B plus is for me. All right, Kevin, that's me. All right. Where to begin with this movie review? So Cole, I'm not going to lie. You put this movie on a pedestal long before I ever watched it. It's not your fault. It's deserving to be on a pedestal. But when I got to it, I had this kind of legendary idea of maybe what this movie might have been about. Um, because out of all the annals of movie history, Cole has determined this is his favorite. Now, that means something. So when I went into this film, I kind of gave it that respect. And I was super pleasantly surprised by what I saw on the other side. I think the major strength of this film and what truly for me makes it unique is these practical effects that we've alluded to on multiple occasions. The, the use of portraying your big horror, your big bad, your big evil 
in a way that makes the audience truly revile, pull back from the screen, feel engrossed, feel just terrified by, is something special. There was so many points in this film where you had to force yourself to watch the screen because there was blood and gore and spewing things and all of this just traumatization that you probably were not expecting when you went into the film. But it hits you so hot and heavy right away in the beginning that you kind of have to assimilate yourself and kind of get used to it right away because it's going to continue to be throughout all of it. And on the second watching, I enjoyed it even much, much more than I enjoyed it on the first time because I really was just like, yeah, that's why this is here. This is why this is included in the film. This is the point that we get the question of who is who and and whether or not they're going to survive. And I can't wait to watch it for a third time, for a fourth time. And that, for me, is what makes a great film truly great, is that rewatchability, that ability to kind of have a great experience every time you watch it. And that's certainly true for me on The Thing. Um, I alluded to earlier that Kurt Russell I thought was the right choice for this film because of his star power, because of his ability to kind of have that in between, um, not really passive aggressive, but just kind of that just I'm here to to get shit done and I'm not here for your personal bullshit. And um, his kind of detachedness from the rest of the crew kind of came through pretty strong for me. Uh, I really thought that John Carpenter did a great job of leaving the question for the audience, and I think that's the, the hallmark of a great director, is not answering every question for the person who's watching it. The ending uh, being ambiguous is also a big plus for me, because it made me question the whole film. And if you question the whole film, that kind of makes you think about everything that you saw before it, which is really important. So... I think all in all, uh, I'm really glad that Cole brought this into my life, I gotta say. And uh, I, I'm gonna give it a, an A24 for sure. So, hell yeah. Greatest movie of all time. I really do appreciate uh, everyone joining us, listening to us, Eric, Kevin. I'm so thankful that you guys watched it and are willing to talk to me about it because Amanda is getting super annoyed with me because I talk about this movie way too much (laughs) so I'm glad I have an outlet Uh, I really do appreciate everyone and I hope we bring a little bit of joy and a little bit of information about cool ass movies that we all love Uh, please click and subscribe rate us give us five stars do whatever you want to do I love you all and I hope everyone has a good night checkmate (laughs) bitch Four or five.